Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast is powered by Shimano. Are we excited yet? Should be. Only a matter of hours now before we're back into the familiar July tableau of sunflowers, cobbles and chateau, and the world's best riders in the world's best bike race. The first week has a couple of flat stages, a few hilly bits and 20 kilometres of Roubaix cobbles in the mix. Already packing their bags are ruler editor Ed Pickering and new ruler recruit, although a proper tour veteran, James Start. Ed thinks the Copenhagen Grand Depart will be a welcome change. Mainly because it's about a thousand kilometres away from France, which I'm not sure if it's absolutely the furthest. There was a Berlin start a long time ago, but it's, it's... it's a long way away. So, you know, obviously the, the closer the race is together, the more easy logistically it is. So it's a long way away. But at the same time, I, I really like the symmetry of the fact that the Tour de France this year links Copenhagen and Paris because uh, both are great cycling cities. And I'm not talking about racing cycling. I'm talking about, you know, just everyday cycling, which you know, is, is, is an important thing. Copenhagen has been prioritizing cycling and active transport for years and years and years and Paris is doing so very radically and quickly at the moment which James is probably in a better position than me to to talk about but I, I like that 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 there's a kind of it's apt that the, the race a bike race is linking these two great cycling cities so I think people, plus Copenhagen's I hear I've never been but I hear it's such a cool place the tour will reflect well on Copenhagen and Copenhagen will reflect well on the tour so I'm anticipating it'll be a lot of fun. Well, welcome to the Ruler podcast and indeed to the magazine, James Start. Uh, you're a photographer, uh, writer, broadcaster. Um, how many Tour de France will this be? Uh, thanks, Ian. Really great to be here. I used to be proud to, to boast how many tours I've done and now it just makes me feel old. Uh, this is number 33. I hit the 30 mark a couple years ago and just, just keep chug- chugging along. And this will be, But it'll be my first one with uh, Ruler and I'm really excited about that. Um, I've worked with you know, tons of publications over the years. I've had lots of great editors and was just uh, really excited to have the chance to come to, to Rouleur this year. And I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, it's a perfect for, for me and the kind of journalism I like to do. And so I can't wait to go to Copenhagen uh, in a couple hours, actually. Of the um, overseas Grand Depart that you've um, uh, been at in the past, what, what was your favorite? There have been a lot. You know, it's almost every other year now, right? Um you know, Dublin was pretty amazing, and I'd lived in Ireland as a child, so that was special. That was obviously pretty strange with the the dawning of the Festina affair. 
we've been to so many places. I was thinking about it the other day, though, and I, I think uh, the London one in 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 '07 in, uh, was just amazing. So memorable with that opening time trial under uh, through the streets of of London under Big Ben and everything. That was that was pretty hard to beat. Although, as Ed said, uh, we did have this one in Berlin, uh, and it, I believe it was '87. And boy, that's the one I miss. That's you know. You think about those great concerts you could have seen when you were a kid and you missed, and and that was sort of the great Tour de France start. I really wish I'd already been part of uh, at that time in my career, but it was a couple of years before I actually got got into the reporting on the sport. Um, so anyway, I think I think it's going to be tremendous. Uh, Copenhagen's a city I've always wanted to visit, and um, the tour has a way of bringing out the best. Uh, in in every place it goes to, so I'm really excited. Uh, talking about um, making you feel old, it's actually now ten years since um, Wiggins won the tour. I was thinking about that. Well, we're actually doing a piece for the next issue on looking back over the, those ten years, and I and I finished writing it. And uh, the basic uh, part of my piece was that um, I came very late to Bradley Wiggins. I didn't quite understand or his true potential and 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 the everything he brought to the sport. Um, until uh, the, you know he'd already won. I, I knew him as a kind of track rider who did little road riding when he was on the French teams, and then he just you know in the space for about three years became a very different rider. But then you know he was just looking back. I mean, Bradley was really one of those people. He just transcended sport. You know, I mean, more probably more than any any other tour champion in in recent years. I mean, he just he was so much bigger than than just a, a one-time tour winner. And I kind of think, sometimes I think about him and I think about Pedro Delgado, the uh, the winner of the 88 tour. Delgado only won one tour, um, but he's the first Spanish uh, rider to win in, what, uh, almost over 30 years. And even though Inder and his teammate went on and won five tours, Delgado's one who won the hearts of, of, of his countrymen. And, and because he was he was so Spanish and, and and he was you know really a very uh, fun loving guy and he just left this this mark uh, much bigger than what actually his his win record was and I think Bradley also um, has you know he only won the tour once um, he only won one Grand Tour but he did it with such style and you know it's just it was it was such a watershed victory and in so many ways that it has left a mark that resonates still today. Uh, Ed, uh, James mentioned the 2007 um, Grand Depine in London, which kind of gets overlooked a bit after 2012 and after the Yorkshire Grand Depart. Um, but it did feel, um, especially in retrospect, it did, did feel like a bit of a turning point for cycling in Britain, didn't it? it, it because it had been through a really, a really bad patch, and that was kind of when it started to feel like it was on the rise again yeah definitely I mean my, my favorite memory of that day is, is being able to get on a train from where I lived in South London at the time and um, <laughs> go to the Tour de France in the afternoon uh, the travel logistics were never so easy but my other memory of that day is, is it was a it was a bright sunny day blue sky great a great London day out with massive crowds I, I wasn't sure whether people would turn up or not because like I say we'd had a few tours in the run-up to that where just hadn't had many British riders at all. I mean, Dave Miller had had his problems and hadn't been racing. Wiggins was more of a track rider at that point, and all the young riders just hadn't come up yet. And 07 was exactly a, a turning point because before that, British cycling was in the doldrums a little bit, and we didn't have much to shout about. You know, it's pre winning a lot of 
medals at the Olympics. It was before we got good at the Tour de France. So 07, definitely a turning point. It seems like a turning point. Obviously, what had been happening during those years before had, was that British cycling had been quietly laying the foundations for the success to come. But you know, it was it was a summer of pretty bad weather, and just that one day dawned with blue sky and sunshine. It, it made me you know made me feel optimistic about British cycling, probably for the first time in many many years. Yeah, I remember watching the start in uh, Hyde Park and then running to uh, Charing Cross to get a train down to Kent and arriving just before the uh, riders. But anyway, moving on, uh, what what should we expect this year, James? Um, what are you really looking forward to this year? Well, you know, on paper, uh, you know, it's it's going to be a huge uh, Pogacar Roglic duel like it has been, but um, that's on paper. And the tour always produces surprises. And so... I'm going there hopeful that there's going to be some great surprises and, and there could be, um, you know, you never know what the tour is going to produce. The, the winds, if there's winds in, in, in Copenhagen and, and, in, in Denmark, uh, some, some guys might, you know, you might not win the race there, but you can lose it the same with the uh, cobblestone stage in the first week. Some, some of the GC riders are already going to be uh, a couple minutes down for sure. That always happens. So, uh, it, you know, it's going to be a really uh, potentially exciting first week, which could already set the stage for a surprising tour. And, and I hope so. Ed, what, what are your predictions for this year? Uh, well, the easy prediction, yeah, as, as James already said, is for Roglic and Pogacar to be the two best riders. They've, they've clearly been the two best Grand Tour riders of, of the last two or three years. So I expect that. But at the same time, chaos usually reigns at the Tour de France. You know, we, last year we expected a Roglic-Pogacar duel and it, it lasted barely into the second or third day of the race I think when Roglic crashed and something chaotic unexpected unpredictable and surprising always happens at the tour often on a on a daily basis I mean the, you know the, the the stages in Denmark although the stage which is supposed to be windy has has crosswinds earlier in the stage as the weather forecast currently is and headwind at the finish. Opening stage, opening road stage of the tour are always chaotic and unpredictable. And all it's going to take is for one rider to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it totally changes the dynamic of the race. And there's so much in the way of parkour in the way. And, you know, there's tough mountain stages and hilly stages and unpredictable stages. And, uh, you know, I... I hate making predictions for the tour just because they basically last no longer than than the first day. Um, this year, I, I presume that there will be a decent hierarchy in the time trial, but beyond that, I, I, you can't make predictions. They they won't last past that stage too. Ed Pickering and James Start, and if everything goes to plan, we'll have some extra ruler podcasts from the tour as it progresses. French hopes for the podium largely rest with Romain Bardet of Team DSM. He won the Tour of the Alps this year and was looking strong in the Giro until sickness forced him to retire on stage 13. His team have a reputation as one of the most technically innovative on the world tour. Behind their slogan, keep challenging. One of the people responsible for that is former rider Pete Ruyakert, Team DSM's R&D expert. He works with the team's equipment partners, including Shimano, to make sure that everything is as perfect as it can be for each rider in each race. Sometimes he's working from the team base, sometimes at the races themselves. Uh, for me, it's always good and nice to be at the first classics of the season. 
just to snoop around. Then it's um, the first big TT in the in the season because many times you have new materials, but more important, your riders go through that whole UCI measurement thing and uh, um, within the rules and the things that I am present. Uh, then then we go off to Paris Roubaix for mechanics and for people in my uh, in my department, the World Championships of the season. Uh, so. I'm pretty proud of zero flat tires uh, the past two years in Roubaix with the World Tour team. And then we, get, we go off to uh, every opening of a Grand Tour. So when Giro, Tour and Vuelta start, I'm there. And that's mainly for, the, for a combination of the, of, the, yeah, of the first TT of the season because there is most of the times new material. Uh, UCI is really sharp on every rule. Um, Riders are nervous, have a lot of questions. Uh, normally, want to change things in the in the final minute, and then yeah, then it's normally good to be there just to for a coach to check on on, on things or uh, for a rider to have a little yeah, give him a little confidence in in, in some choices uh, to go for a new. But I always do the uh, the, the the TT uh, the time trial parcours recon also, so I. I preview the races in materials uh, which wheels which tires which setup we use but then uh, for those races uh, i also do the the recon of the parkour just to see like the time trial in the Giro, that the descent was a little more hard at that point there was a lot of side winds uh, dangerous winds uh, then we shift maybe a bit in a wheel or in a tire pressure for a cornering and that's uh, just for the final things and then also for maybe a little bigger chain ring or a bigger inner ring or something like that um, because yeah, we have some nice software to check on percusses, but in real, it's it can be just a tiny bit different. Uh, you were a rider yourself um, in a previous version of uh, Team DSM when it was um, Skill Shimano. Um, how much of a help is that in understanding what riders want and how they communicate? To be honest, a lot has changed in the meantime. It's uh, it's not so it's not so there, but I should have had have gray hair by now that's uh, 12 to 15 years ago but um yeah riders stay the same they 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 always want more and they when they are happy the next day they look for something else and that's basically what we what we try to also try to do with keep challenging uh, motto yeah the, the the ways of communication also uh, uh, with their colleagues and uh, yeah it's it's really improved so so all also the riders are a uh, yeah, smart guys. Uh, in the past, we just went with the flow, uh, tried to go with uh, uh, newest things, but also relied on what the team said. And now, yeah, riders have much more of a of a voice, but also maybe also better input. And that's what what uh, what changed. And what's I think what's accelerated really development of themselves. Also, if you look at average speeds of the of TTs, yeah, you cannot compare it. It's almost uncomparable uh, uh, with the past. And uh, the, that's what I tried back in the day. So it's not that it was not there, but I was more or less the guy who uh, was pretty picky in these things. And that's also why uh, our CEO came back to me uh, to to ask me for this job because I was the guy who said, yeah, but should we do this? Should we do that? That's still the same. We have a lot of choices now. Back in the days, you had uh, 23 and 24 millimeter tires and that was about it. And then, uh, yeah, okay, tubular, yeah, okay, clincher. There was no tubeless uh, yet, so yeah, the choices were less. The, it's, 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 it's. There is 
so much uh, offered now to the riders that they, yeah, it's, I think it's also normal that they become a little bit nervous. One of the things I understand you do is a, is an expert plan for each race or each stage of a, of a race, um, which kind of details everything, gearing, tyres, helmets, components, you know, everything. How does that work? We started with this to make it really as, a, as an advice uh, a couple of years ago uh, and then just to make it uh, easier for the rider to that he doesn't have to think about it anymore. But then it evolved also for the mechanics of the baseline for the packing. And then in the end, you have riders who not even look to the setup anymore. They just say, what does it, what's on the paper and what's on the menu and let's go for it because he thought about it. Well, what I do is that we have... Um, uh, uh, a couple of software uh, things to check on all parcourses. Huh? You have uh, Bello Viewer, which is uh, uh, pretty useful for all the data in, in, in maximum inclination, and uh, you have some uh, some road surfaces. And then in the in the past year, we developed um, together with TU Delft, with the university, we developed uh, to get a road scout, we call it, where I can put in a GPS, GPX route, and then uh, it, it shows me pictures of all insane routes that they can find in, I don't know, Spain or something, because it sounds difficult for Rubert, but in, in the end, Rubert is quite easy for me because we know the setup and we know where we go and stuff. But once that they do gravel in Ruta del Sol in the south of Spain and nobody tells me, I, then I don't know. And then we arrive there with the wrong tire or tire pressure. So that's where the where the software comes in uh, to give me a, a help, a, a heads up. Uh, and then uh, by, by checking all the gradients and the... The final kilometers, team tactics. We have also an, uh, a platform where I, where I can check. It's not a really long, but it's like in two or three sentences. The team tactics, with uh, which rider it is. Uh, like if you want to go on the on the podio, or you want to go for a sprint, maybe that's a different tactic. And and then you have different wheels, a different approach. But um, yeah, that's where we select uh, based on what we call a pacing plan for the TT. We can we can see some setups, which is good for. Uh, if it's a, if it's uphill, the combination or the balance of, of of weight and aerodynamics, yeah. By doing that, in the end, we can uh, we can preview uh, if it's a sprinter helmet or a normal helmet, uh, if it's a, a deep section wheel or a low section uh, wheel, and then uh, you know the road, so you know your tire. Then we have tire pressures uh, based on yeah on the theoretics rolling resistance from. Uh, from our partners, uh, Vitoria has uh, numerous data inputs for us, and I try to um, put that in a categorical order. Uh, I go out also myself to do testing to validate those numbers to see yeah what's better, what's worse. And that's those pressures uh, more or less now are automated uh, based on the weight of the riders, and then uh, from there on uh, you then you know your tire width, then you know your tire pressure, and then uh, and then it, it it ends up in a in a small Excel overview for every stage for every rider. But in the end, it ends up we have a Devo team, we have a women's team, we have a men's team. We have like 500 races a year, so I need to check on 500 parcourses. And sometimes it's not easy, but yeah, making the steps in the software, it it works. And um, in the end, still we have to yeah, to evaluate a bit and to see if a rider says yeah but really i'm getting tired i need a lighter gearing option and then uh, so so it will never stop that you also have to think yourself or i always have to rethink and but this is how we do it and um yeah especially uh when the mechanics are uh 
by themselves in a, in a smaller classic or uh, like with the development team or with the women's team that sometimes staff is a little bit uh, less than in a world tour team then it's really helpful in them because they can do uh, a setup pretty quickly is your job getting more complex uh, yeah as race organizers find more and more you know different surfaces steeper hills every you know it, it, the welter every year seems to find a new more challenging hill yeah you need to really verify all parkers, all races that we try to fix on our side eh? and then we have uh, to be honest now with the new 12 speed group that we uh, that we have it became a little easier you have uh, some options there in 12 speed uh, and you go with the combinations from uh, from shimano 1130 cassette and an 1134 and then you're done uh, uh, most of the time with those uh, compact cranks and stuff and it's a lot of work for the mechanics so uh, the new group set uh, will make it a little easier for us. Uh, on the other hand, we're also in the middle of the conversion from tubular to tubeless. Uh, so that's all. That's another variable that we t- have to take in the, into account. Um, let's see where it ends in the future. Eh? The less variables, it's the easier the choice. But uh, as long as it's uh, the performance is there, then, then we need to have them all. So for me, the parcourses, we really try to to make it easier. Uh, I also hope that, that organizers make it easier for themselves. But uh, yeah, I don't know if it's always for the public. They say it's for the spectators and stuff, but I'm not sure if uh, if it uh, if it brings so much as they asked. Eh? Uh, I don't know if it's a, if a crash or a flat tire brings the, brings the suspense that they are looking for. Uh, One of the constants of the team since it was... Um skill shimano is that relationship with shimano who've been involved with the team throughout how does that work on my side that works that we are uh, in, a, in a really early stage uh, uh, taken into a development process of a new thing so we're quite quickly uh, aware of new developments but you never know at what point that is uh, but uh, like last year we did some trials on the 12-speed group set uh, back in the days in uh, 2000 Seven, I think it was. I did the on my the Mallorca challenge as the one of the first riders on the DI2. Uh, so you get the new the new stuff, uh, yeah, as the first, and I think that is good because then you have a say in development. It feels you responsible also. Eh? It's also like uh, okay, when I don't report this or where we can't fix this, it's an issue. So it 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 also makes you a little bit more part of that family. Um, yeah, sometimes of course that, uh, that 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 gives us some work and it needs some yeah some extra effort. For me, of course, only nice. I always like those things. Also, mechanics do like it most of the time. They are also material freaks. But then for riders or a direct sports director, they need to t- take things into account. And then for them, it's a little extra work. But uh, in the end, it's for us super worth it. We were uh, yeah, we get faster wheels quicker. We get uh, an extra gear quicker and. Uh, yeah, those things really. Uh, yeah, in the in the end, riders want the the, the newest, nicest bike. So uh, it 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 does it's, it works also really nice to watch the riders to sometimes be able to give them something better and faster. If uh, on the first of January everybody gets it, there is no competitive advantage when you have a a new chain that runs smoother or is lighter than you have. Yeah, at least for a couple of uh, months that uh, that advantage and. Uh, that's in the end what we race for it. Cycling technology has changed so much, particularly in in uh, recent years. What, what do you think are the where are the big areas um, that there's going to be a lot of change in the next couple of years? I mean, you know, where, where, where's where's the next big 
um, advantage going to come from? Do you think? I think somewhere on that point where 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 comfort brings uh, energy. So it's not in the maximum uh, speed in high velocities or something. I think the the aerodynamic part is uh, uh, yeah, it's really emphasized uh, the past years. Uh, some things maybe uh, have been uh, yeah for that a little bit uh, back on schedule, but I think everything with that will be uh, will be important just to be uh, to be able when you come to that bottleneck in a race to that important section to be yeah not yeah to be better rested and to get, go to your maximum capacity and it can be tubeless tires uh, something within the tires maybe it's back again the tubular but normally that would be a tubeless tire to save that energy. Um, and uh, you have the composition of of of, of uh, mechanical resistance. You have aerodynamic drag, and then you have the gravity, and 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 those three things you need to conquer always. And uh, yeah, we focus a long time on aerodynamics, and I think we will focus on some of the others now. UCI has limited to six point eight kilos, so the gravity part is also a little bit, yeah, fixed. Going, yeah, the, it's 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 more difficult. It will be really going to to marginal gains. Uh, yeah, I think the 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 next one. Uh, for me, it would be then uh, the mechanical resistance and the, and the and the rolling resistance, all resistance parts. Now you're going into the um, Tour de France one this weekend with a French team leader. How is Romain at the moment? What sort of form is he in? I'm no trainer, so I don't know the exact form. Uh, what I know is that is uh, the the Giro will give him some extra mental power because he was really. Uh, I think he really is uh, a guy that can. Yeah, can can take out power off a setback. And uh, when I spoke to him, and uh, we did a when we did a, a Roubaix stage five recon, uh, I did, I saw a guy that that doesn't look back, only looks forward. Uh, every detail. Uh, it was a, more or less a change because the goal was zero, and then in the end, I think uh, yeah, there is not no. Don't left on third on the parkour for him for for the Tour de France in the end. He makes sure that he knows everything, and uh, I think that really makes him a top sporter. He, he he will make sure that everything is touched in every every topic, and uh, yeah, that's a, that's a quality not all riders have. It's a role model of top sport, I think, and uh, this makes him uh, ready for the Tour. Um, only it's a little bit of uh, of a of a of a roulette game in the in the Tour always uh, first first week uh when you come out of that one without a big uh setback in, in in seconds or with a crash or with a with a material uh issue then uh, then you're good to go but uh, you cannot you cannot say anything about this after uh, let's say after that rubber stage okay pete thanks very much indeed for um joining us and and good luck with the tour and the rest of the season thank you why hello there podcast interruption alert but i will only take a few short moments to say that if you're enjoying this podcast you will love the regular magazine so if you're not a reader already then you can subscribe at ruler.cc for as little as six pounds per month if you don't speak northern irish that's six times 100 pennies and for the price of a few coffees you get regular columns from the wonderful ned bolting myself orla and some of the very finest independent cycling journalism there is all wrapped up in a wondrously beautiful publication go to ruler.cc i'll leave you to it
This is Ruler Conversations. I'm Ian Parkinson. Now, there's no shortage of books about the Tour de France. Even in my relatively small cycling library, I stopped counting when I got to about 30, and more appear every year at about this time. But one that really stood out from the bunch this year is Pain and Privilege Inside La Tour by the Australian writer and broadcaster Sophie Smith. And she joins me now, literally, uh, almost just off the plane. Um, welcome to Europe, Sophie. It's a little um, different this time to the last time you came over to cover the tour, isn't it? It is, yes. Everything, dare I say, is a little bit back to normal um, at both ends of, of the journey, which is nice. Because last time you, you kind of got stuck here after the tour. I did, yes. So I got government. I had to get government permission last year to leave Australia and, and cover the Tour de France, uh, which I got. It was a very surreal experience going to the airport. It was more like a military operation. There was no one there. They called customs and went through all your paperwork and got to Europe and was like it was actually almost a relief like here compared to Australia was chalk and cheese um but then the government while I was at the tour the Australian government put a quarantine cap on so my flights got indefinitely cancelled so it's a good thing London's my second home so I came back here (laughs) had an extended break Tell us a little bit about your journey into cycling journalism before we talk about the book, because it wasn't necessarily a natural choice for you in the, at the beginning, was it? I had no idea who Lance Armstrong was. Alone. Like I hadn't even computed that professional cycling was a sport. It was weird because I used to cycle as a kid. I'm the oldest of four. So my dad used to take us out for bike rides as a kid all the time to give my mum a break. <laughs> um, but I never computed for some reason that it was a sport. And I did my journalism cadetship. I moved to a regional town called Geelong from Melbourne and Geelong got the world championships in 2010 and I was working for the local newspaper and my editor came over to me at the time and just said, you're going to do cycling for the next year and a bit. And I think I touched on this in pain and privilege in the back of my mind. I was like, yeah, okay, I'm going to do this for like two months and then tell you I can't feel it. But turns out that Cadell Evans has a base near Geelong in the off season. Uh, there was a, a cyclist, Lee Howard, who signed for HTC iRoad. So they were there every off season. And then the World Championships happened. So my editor said, this is going to be the start of something big or you'll never do something like this again. So go for it. I went to every national team press conference. I met riders and sports directors from from every squad and just haven't left since. Got offered jobs (laughs) and haven't left. Now, the opening and the closing of your book, you say that everyone who rides or take part, it takes part in the tour, um, every year at the end of it, they say they hate it. In fact, there's much stronger language than that. They, they really hate it. Um, but people always come back for more, which I guess is a little bit like you. What, why? What, what is it about the tour? It's a bit like an addiction. And it's something I tried to get into with pain and privilege. But even when you've I'm coming up for my 10th Tour de France and it's still a little bit difficult putting into words. I think that's a, one of the things that makes the tour stand out is that lure to it. You know, I, I spoke to so many writers and team officials for this book and the pain that people go through, like mentally, physically at the race, but also leading up to it. One of the things that stood out was you'd speak to writers about injuries that sustain, for example, all these diets where they've got apps that weigh out like rice kernels that they can <laughs> eat by the, you know, by the grain. And it was the only event where they'd sort of say, no, you know, I broke like three ribs, but I kept going on because it's the tour. Like it's that cliche in any other race they'd pull out. There's something about it. I don't know if it's just like the prestige and the history of it that keeps you there 
or that you're just running on adrenaline and adrenaline becomes addictive. But it is genuinely one of those races you get to the end of it and people hug each other and say, congratulations, you've finished and you fall in a heap for a week afterwards, even us journalists. And then for some reason you just come back. It's a bit like an addiction. I'm not entirely sure why. <laughs> sort of the ultimate high or the ultimate low. And for me as well, like the friends I've made um, from all over the world every year, it's like a, it's an international sporting spectacle. You've got people there that you come back and from literally every continent and see every season. So there's a lot that draws you to it. You alluded there to, um, you know, uh, cycling diets, cyclist diets, and you actually talk quite a bit in the book about eating disorders or borderline eating disorders and uh, riders' mental health as well, which are things that are hugely important but often don't get discussed in cycling journalism, do they? No, that was one thing I wanted to touch on in this book was not write a not write a book about the tour that glamorizes the event or glorifies riders as gladiators because that's never how I've seen them I've always tried to approach them as as people and get to know them be able to walk away with a sense of who they are as an athlete or as a person so I think in building that over the years I've got to a point where I could ask quite forward questions questions that you perhaps wouldn't normally ask anyone even in a social setting and it's one of those things you look at it at the tour every year and there's a description and just at the physiques of the riders and like when they're in their lycra sometimes you don't notice it as much when they're in standard clothing you do but you know that they've got limbs that I I I say it in the book that like resemble an old man's (laughs) I remember looking at a a, one of the past winners and he was I don't know how old he Garrett Thomas when he uh, won in 2018 and just looking at his legs and just thinking, they look like my grandfather's legs. And my grandfather was passed away <laughs> a long time ago. But it's a, like, it's insane because then they can go and produce these feats where if you're a sprinter, you're doing up to 70k an hour or you're climbing Mon Von Tu or something like that. But I don't think that area of, you know, people just use the word sacrifice or no one really touches on how they get their bodies to that point, which can be borderline abnormal or unhealthy. Um, so it's something I've focused on, not just in this book, but over the last few years, because to me, it's an obvious when weight gain is such a important part of high performance. There's also the other side to that. And that's sort of what I wanted to do in Pain and Privilege is present what we know, but then also give the other side to it. And the other side to it is not always pretty. Sometimes it's very ugly. In your experience, are people inside the peloton, the riders talking a bit more about that now? Because it was always a bit of a taboo subject, wasn't it? No one would actually discuss what weight they were. I think it depends on who they are. A lot of them were very open in talking about fat shaming, how they'll get everyone from within the team, like sports directors to pundits on the side of the road, judging their form from January through to July based on how they look. But I think in terms of, you know, confronting eating disorders and talking about eating disorders for anybody is an incredibly sensitive topic. And if you're suffering from from that, I think it's even harder sometimes to recognise it or be open about it, particularly in an industry where weight, as we've said, is is a huge performance gain. So I, in my experience, it's not usual for a writer to reference their weight. And for this book and in previous stories I've done, I've been told like off record people that might be 
on that knife's edge. Everyone's on that knife's edge at the tour. Like it's why riders are so susceptible to getting sick. Like it's the best of the best at their best. Like everyone is on a knife's edge there. But speaking to some people who I'd been told in private were living off yogurt and berries or not eating healthily, um, speaking to them about it, some of them just didn't want to go there, which is, I think that's part and parcel with, with that condition. But it was interesting also speaking to sports nutritionists about it because uh, there was a one from Yumbo Visma who was just saying that a bad, if a rider's having a bad day outside of being injured, it's because they haven't fueled properly. Like he put that entirely down to what people are eating or aren't eating. So it's a double-edged sword. In uh, Pain and Privilege, you, you, you do focus quite a bit and understandably on Australian riders. You talk to a lot of Australian riders. And the, uh, Australia is not necessarily thought of as a big cycling country, one of the classic cycling countries. But there have been some really standout figures like Cadell Evans, Richie Port, Robin McEwen, etc. Big characters. Is there something, do you think, about um, Australian riders who do come to Europe that they are of a particular of a particular type or have particular characteristics? I think you really have to want it. Like it's, I've, I've done it <laughs> in my capacity as a journalist. Like it's a big call when you're typically quite young to say, I'm going to move to the other side of the world. Like I moved to the UK, so I didn't have a language barrier, but I'm going to move to the other side of the world. And it quite literally is the other side of the world. I just got off a 24 hour flight. <laughs> it's a long way. I think to make that sacrifice of leaving everything, you know, and everyone, you know, to come here, um, is a special sort of form of, of gumption because it's not like you can, if you're having a bad day, you can go home on the weekend. It takes a weekend um, to get there. So I think that sort of desire and drive and, and really wanting it is is one thing, particularly when it's not hugely recognised in Australia either. The sport, I mean, <laughs> not not that sacrifice. Um, I guess like you could just go into colloquially, they're just, they're hard workers, but I think that... That drive is probably paramount and they do that from, you know, first stepping foot off the plane before they've even got into a race. Early on in your sort of uh, career reporting on the tour, you were obliquely mentioned in The Guardian as I think the only woman in the press room on a Tour de France stage. Has that changed in the years that you've been doing it? Is that better now? Uh, it's better, but I, I would still say... I mean, you still have to ask that question. So, <laughs> so, and that's what everyone does. Um, and because you have to ask that question, it's the answer is obviously it's not 50 50. It's better. That day you were referring to in, it was a course to get grand apart, and the press room was on a ferry, the print press room. And I stood up to stretch and I looked around the room, and there were 100 journalists in the room, and I was the only female there. I think the females in the industry now, the female journalists and reporters, are stand out. They're incredible at what they do very knowledgeable and we all go through a lot of stuff like on the sidelines that our male counterparts don't. So there's more of us, but I would still say you can count them on your fingers and toes, but it's getting better. It's getting better. And there's a new jet. I'm not the youngest in the press room anymore, which is slightly, <laughs> slightly deflating, uh, but there are more women coming through. And do you think the Tour de France firm is going to make a difference to that? I mean, not to uh, the coverage of men's races as well, not simply covering that. I think so, yeah. I think the way they've done it this year as well, having it as a, a standalone event and having that support with ASO and just in general, the women's peloton as the men's is becoming more professional. I think that puts it in, in really good stead. Before you go, who is going to win the men's Tour de France, do you think? 
Everyone I've spoken to, Tade Pogacar, he seems to have the the peloton already mentally beat. Having said that, I haven't spoken to uh, Primoz Roglic yet. We're going to put an Australian vote in. I think Ben O'Connor could be potential for a podium finish. He's having a great season, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. And he's confident. He's sort of, um, to be honest, he's not someone I've worked with closely until his like, emphatic debut last year. Uh, but he's going in differently this year. Um, he'll be a marked man for starters. He's not going to be allowed to win something from a breakaway. And for the first time, he's an outright to a team leader, at, as you two are. So he'll be one to watch, I think. But Pogaccio just seems to have the peloton, like, He's already sort of got that that mental advantage now. And everyone I spoke to, past and present winners, I've said, how do you beat him? And they're all a bit flummoxed. But you never know. <laughs> Strange things happen at the tour. Thank you, Sophie. Uh, Pain and Privilege, Inside Latour by Sophie Smith is available now. That's it from this Ruler Conversations. Listen out for some special editions on the rest days of the tour. And there'll be a tech podcast along as well next week. 